Praise God. If you have your Bibles, hopefully you're at Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. I'll read this verse for us. It simply says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. May the Lord add a blessing to the readers, hearers, doers of his holy and errant and infallible word. America spends about $69 billion in advertising a year. $69 billion on average is spent in America on advertising. $69 billion with a big old B a year. Just during the Super Bowl alone, Approximately 65 commercials were shown during that four-hour window. And each commercial had about a 30-second spot, unless they bought more. Before a 30-second spot, they paid somewhere in the neighborhood of about $5.6 million for each 30-second spot. They estimated that the, that the total for all of the commercials that came in that day was about $485 million in that four-hour period of the game. According to a study done at the University of Southern California, approximately 5.3 trillion display ads are shown online each year. 5.3 trillion with a big old T. An average person sees 2 million TV commercials a year. Back in the 1970s, the average number of ads a person was expected to see a day was somewhere in the neighborhood of about 500. Now that number is roughly 5,000. Why is this? Why so much money? Why so much energy? Why so much time dedicated to advertising? Well, Here's a simple answer. It's not because companies simply enjoy advertising. It's not because companies love spending oodles of money and increasing their advertising budgets more and more and more each and every single year. No, it's, it's, it's rather for another reason, and this is the reason. It is because it works. They spend 69 Billion dollars a year on advertising in this country because it works. But it doesn't always work like you and I think that is supposed to work. For example, most commercials key in on your attention in, fa in a fascinating way that, that's, that's not as obvious as we think. You know, they don't, most commercials don't key in to the content of the product, in other words. They don't talk about the bells and whistles. They don't talk about all of the specifications. I mean, they do sometimes, but most of the time, that's not what they're focused on. That's not their priority in the commercial. That's not the message that they're communicating to you. For example, if you watch a commercial about a phone, whether it be Samsung or Apple or a laptop, Apple or Microsoft, you will see a little bit about the phone, but most of the time, you will see far more scenes of people People talking on the phone. People hanging out together at, at parties and holding the phone. 
people smiling and people laughing with the phone. People driving in really, really, really nice cars with the phone. In fact, most advertising specialists encourage this type of, this type of use of scenery and pictures and messaging in advertising. And why is that? It is because the goal is not to sell you on the content of the phone. Who cares about the content of the phone? The goal is to sell you on how the phone will make you feel. Emotional response to an ad has greater influence on a consumer's intent to buy a product than the ad's content does. That's what uh, uh, psychology specialists and college specialists have deemed. That the emotional response is what they're driving towards. The goal is to make you say to yourself, I need this phone. I really, really, really need this phone because if I have this phone, I can have this life. Or if I have this beer, I can have this life. If I have this laptop, I can, I can have this life. If I have this car, I can have this life. It's to try to connect you to a certain kind of life that is not available to you unless you get the product that they are advertising. In other words, advertisers know something that very few of us tend to know, and that is the power of coveting. They understand the power of coveting. That it will drive you to make decisions in hopes that you will have the life that you believe is within the grasp of that particular thing that you're pursuing. So what does it actually mean to covet? That's the first thing I want to talk about this morning. What does it mean to covet? Merriam-Webster has two great definitions for it. Their definition for covet is to wish for earnestly. That's the first definition, to wish for earnestly. Now, of course, this, may, this doesn't quite make sense because there are many things that we can wish for earnestly, and they are all very, very, very good things. We can wish for our children to be well taken care of and provided for. We can wish that we are able to leave them in, better, in a better situation at our departure from this world than, we, than, than they were when they came into this world. We can, we can wish earnestly for a deeper relationship with God. I mean, I mean, is that not a righteous wish to wish earnestly for? Of course it is. In fact, I hope it is, and I pray that it is for many of you, if not all of you. I pray that you're praying for a deeper relationship with God, deeper fellowship with God for your life and for your family and for your church family. So that is an earnest desire, an earnest wish. We can earnestly desire someone to come and restore all that is broken in this world. That's an earnest desire. In fact, if you're, if you're watching online and, and you're not a Christian, I'm here to tell you that it, is, that it is an earnest and righteous desire for you to desire that someone come and make all things right in this world that have been broken. In fact, we believe that it is the ache that is felt around the world and, and throughout human history, an ache that started in Genesis 3 when mankind first disobeyed God and invited sin and death and disorder and chaos into the world and into our lives. 
and into the human race. However, we believe, also believe that there is one who is named Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. He came to the earth in the form of a man, God in the flesh. He lived a perfect life and died for sinners so that we might be forgiven, that we might be cleansed of all unrighteousness, and that we might be restored back to fellowship with God, and that we might be put on the trajectory to see that restoration that you should earnestly desire and yearn for. That is a good and an earnest desire, a God-given desire. And I pray that this morning you would act on that desire if you have not yet acted on that desire and submit to Jesus today by turning from your life of rebellion against God and turning to Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. Those are good desires. Act on those good and righteous and holy desires. Even the psalm tells us that if we trust in the Lord and do good and dwell in the land of, and dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness and we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give us the desires of our hearts. Psalm 37 and 4. Meaning that there are, in fact, righteous and good desires that the Lord will make available to us when our heart is on the same wavelength as his, which happens when we are delighting in him. So if coveting is not always bad, the question then becomes, when does coveting become bad? This is Merriam-Webster's second definition, which is helpful for us here. And it's this, to desire what belongs to another or to desire, period, inordinately or culpably. Inordinately. It is not just desire, but it is a desire that, which, that, that, that does not belong to us. It is to, it is to desire that which does not belong to us. And it is to desire that which is not necessarily designed and designated for us. It is to desire that thing that does not belong to us or that thing that is not designed and designated for us inordinately or excessively. That's what it means. In other words, not getting it, that thing that does not belong to us or that thing that, we, uh, that, that is not designed for us, not getting it changes you at a fundamental level. You understand that? Not getting it, not, not getting the car causes you to grow bitter. Not Getting the promotion causes you to grow excessively angry. Not getting the recognition for the work that you perform causes you to grow callous and to stop caring about the work itself. Have you ever seen that? People dedicate energy and their, their lives and their heart into a thing until the credit they were seeking doesn't come. And then they stop caring about the thing altogether. It changes you at a fundamental level. That's what it means to covet. Not having the relationship you want with someone, the closeness that, that may be someone else's that they enjoy with that person. 
And not having that relationship causes you to gossip about that person or gossip about both of those people or spend more and more time and energy highlighting the flaws of those people that you're seeking relationship with or seeking closer relationship with, but you can't get it. It changes you at a fundamental level. This is the type of covenant that God commands the people against in Exodus 20 and 17. Don't cover your neighbor's house. That's to say don't cover your neighbor's possessions. Don't cover your neighbor's wife. That's to say don't cover your neighbor's relationship or relationships. Don't cover your neighbor's male servant or female servant or ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. That is to covet your neighbor's status, to covet your neighbor's life, to say, I want that life, to say, I should have that life. Here's another very important observation about coveting. This is the only command that doesn't come with a clear external expression. This is the only command You can't fly under the radar on these other commands. False witness, lying. You you can see and hear when people are lying. Murder, you can see when people murder. Adultery, you certainly can see that. Stealing, you can see that. Dishonoring the parents even can be seen. Some of the greatest coveters, however, can fly under the radar, unseen. They can appear to be good friends who are secretly despising the fact that their friend has a bigger car, bigger house, bigger wardrobe than they do. Or that they get more attention than they do because of their looks. They can appear to be faithful church members who are only faithful because they crave the accolades that comes with their faithfulness. They love to hear people say, brother so-and-so, you are so fantastic. Sister so-and-so, you are so faithful. Oh, thank you. I'm just trying to do what the Lord's called me to do. But inwardly, if they don't get that credit, their lives are devastated. Coveting is unseen, and because it's unseen, it is even easier to deny and deflect if you're confronted with it. Someone calls you out on coveting, it's hard, it's hard to call people out on coveting, isn't it? It's hard to call ourselves out on coveting. We're, we, we're constantly telling ourselves, well, I mean, I'm not that bad, right? Yeah, I mean, I know I got to buy every single shoe that comes out, but I'm, I'm, I mean, you know, I've left a few on the, on the shelf. I haven't bought all of them. And because it's unseen, it requires more honest and more sober self-reflection and more honest and more sober evaluation. When you look at the Bible, there's a few examples of coveting even in Scripture. Very important examples. There are many examples. I just want to highlight a couple this morning. First example I want to highlight points to coveting in relationships. Of course, we know the, first, the, the actual first example um, um, that we see uh, of coveting is Cain and Abel. We see the brothers covet, right? Well, of course, we see Adam and Eve with Eve coveting too, the fruit from the tree. But following that, we see Cain and Abel in the relationship 
severed as a result of that coveting. But that's not even the one I want to point to this morning. I want to point to the one in Genesis chapter 37. In Genesis chapter 37, it's a story about a man by the name, a young boy by the name of Joseph. Joseph has brothers. His father, however, loves Joseph more than he loves the brothers. In fact, it says in verse 4, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, talking about Joseph, listen to this, they hated him. They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. In fact, we know the story, many of us, because they hated him, they sought to kill him until one of the brothers said, dude, he's our brother. And they said, okay, okay, maybe that's a little harsh. We'll just sell, sell, him, sell him into slavery then. As if that was somehow, you know, a lesser blow, right? We didn't kill him, we just sold him. But notice what happens here. Because they covet the relationship that Joseph enjoys, that Joseph has with his father. Now, keep in mind, this is a relationship that Joseph literally has no control over. But because they covet that relationship, even though he has no control over it, they hate him for it. And even though he has no control over it, they forget that Joseph is their brother. They only saw, instead of Joseph being seen as a brother, instead of Joseph even being seen as an, at least an image bearer, they now only see Joseph as an object of, for, uh, of affection that they do not have. Which, which, by the way, this was affection that he could not help and he did not orchestrate. If we, if we were to be honest with one another this morning, we would know that some of our relationships, many of us, maybe someone watching, maybe someone even here in the courtyard with me today, that some of us are living with divisions in relationships that had nothing to actually do with anything that either party was or had done, but rather what someone feels about the relationship that's enjoyed by another. Some of us have family members that are considered seen more fondly. And as a result of that family member being seen more fondly by other people, we have distanced ourselves from that family member. Some of us ourselves are that family member. That because we're seen more fondly by our parents or because we're seen more fondly by our friends or because we're seen more fondly by our kinfolk, our relatives, distance has, has, has crept into the relationship. And it had nothing to do with the parties involved in that relationship, but rather it was the envy and the coveting for the other relationships outside of that relationship. We forget, we literally forget the relationship that we have because of the relationships outside that we see that we want. Here's another example. In 1 Samuel, chapter 18, 
you know the story um, that precedes this example. David and Goliath, the great giant Philistine who David slayed with his slingshot. Now, Israel was in a panic, a state of panic, while Goliath showed up on the scene daily to talk smack to Israel. I mean, <laughs> Goliath, Goliath would have been like one of the greatest trash talkers in the NBA, right? I mean, he just, he just shows up every day and talks trash to Israel. And they're mortified by him. Nobody wants, to, nobody wants to actually take him on. Nobody wants to take him out. Nobody even believes that they can. But David comes along, God's chosen vessel. He slays the giant, cuts his head off, takes his head and parades it around, shows it to the king. Hey, look at, look at Goliath's head. And then this happens in chapter 18. Listen to this. As they were coming home, verse 6. When David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. This moment happens right after David returned from defeating Goliath. This moment happened right after this giant that tormented and tortured and taunted Israel every single day was defeated and his head was chopped off. In other words, there was a major victory in the nation. God had given the nation and the king the outcome that they desired. And yet we have this moment where Saul hears the voices of the people giving David higher praise in the moment. They're singing this song, and, a, and I'm sure this song slaps, right? I'm sure this song is great, and everybody's dancing as the, as the women are singing this song, right? And Saul's not dancing. Saul's not amused by this song. Because this song reflects the grace of God on David's life. And Saul says, I, I want that. Again, God gave them the victory, saints, but it didn't come through Saul. Listen, coveting will leave you disappointed, not because God didn't move to answer your prayers, but because he chose somebody else to answer them with instead of you. He still answered them, but he answered them through somebody else. It'll leave you bitter. Because he didn't use you to answer. Will you be able to accept, saints, if, if God does the work that you have been praying for him to do in your family, that you have been praying for him to do in your school, that you have been praying for him to do on your job, that you have been praying for him to do in your church, if, that you have been praying for him to do in your city, but he does it through somebody else. 
Maybe you've been praying, Lord, I just want, I just want, to, I just want this job to just, to just be a better place, and I just want this job to, you know, just, to just, to just uh, be a, a, a place where, where Christians are leading the way and Christians are, are shaping the culture. And then God, God does it. He answers it. But it's not, it's not because of your promotion. It's because of your best friend's promotion who's also a Christian. Will you be able to accept that? Or were you praying that prayer secretly thinking, and God, I know you're going to do it as soon as you promote me. You see, if that bothers you, then maybe we aren't asking the, the work to be done purely for the glory of God's name. Maybe we're asking the work to be done for our name. You see, sometimes our coveting of another's relationship as in Joseph and his brothers, or the, our coveting of, a, or of someone's status, as in Saul and David, or, or, or our need to receive the credit for a work we've asked the Lord to do, sometimes that reveals a hidden desire for the glory that belongs to God and God alone. Again, and, and, and we have to think about the fact that coveting is a very difficult thing to see. And so we need to ask the Lord to search our, search our heart this morning. Ask him for a heart that doesn't need the credit for a work that we've asked him to do. Some of you may be literally living lives where you search out opportunities to serve the Lord and utilize your gifting based primarily on whether or not you will get credit for it. And if you don't think there is an opportunity for you to be credited, then you find excuses for not doing it. The only time you find energy is when the credit is coming your way. Ask the Lord to search your heart this morning. Ask him for a heart that wants him to be glorified more than it wants a greater reputation, reputation amongst men. Here's another thing that we see in Saul's coveting. The lyrics of the song, the lyrics of the song being sung, bothers Saul greatly. Listen, he says, the, the women sing, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? They sing about the thousands that Saul struck down, but it is drowned out because Saul is counting David's. He's not counting his. He can't even thank God for what he's doing in his life because he's looking over with envy at what he's doing in David's life. It's not like they said, and Saul has slain nobody, right? It's like, no, Saul slain thousands. David has slain 10,000. He can't even say, thank God for the thousands. He's looking over at David like, I can't believe they sung that about David. Does your gazing, saints, at, at the tens of thousands of mercies God has granted to other people around you, blind you to the thousands of mercies that he has granted you. Are you blinded to your mercies, counting the mercies of someone else? Notice that even a nation's stability is literally placed at risk because of coveting. Coveting can destroy relationships at a personal level, but coveting can destroy nations 
Coveting can destroy churches. Coveting has a destructive way, uh, has a destructive power at a corporate level as well that we need to be mindful of. Can I just give you a caution real quick while we're talking about coveting? Can I just give you a caution for social media? Social media leaves some of us living in an unending state of comparison. Everybody's taking their best pictures, sharing their best thoughts, right? We, are, we aren't that smart, right? And some of us are thinking all day before we post that post. And we're sharing these thoughtful things and you're looking at these thoughtful things being shared by other people saying, I wish I was that smart. You're looking at these beautiful photos being shared by people and saying, I wish I was that beautiful. You're looking at these great meals that people are having and saying, man, I wish I could go out to eat like that. And what you don't know is that they aren't going out to eat like that every day. That's why they took a picture of it. Social media leaves some of us living a life of unending state, in an unending state of comparison a perpetual state of disregarding the thousands of instances of mercy in our lives because we're fixed on the tens of thousands of instances of mercy in others. Not the Bible, but there is a thought that's been shared often that comparison is the thief of joy. That is, in some regards, true. But But more succinctly, it is unhealthy and unceasing comparison. That is the thief of joy. In other words, not all comparison is bad. But to be constantly inundated in comparing yourself to others is simply unhealthy. This is the power and this is the danger in coveting. Ultimately, coveting, as we find in Scripture, is a very, very serious sin. And we say, well, well, I mean, we talked about this, relationships being destroyed because of coveting. Nations being disrupted with Saul and with David because of coveting. In fact, Saul, in fact, Paul, rather, in Ephesians chapter 5, speaks of the sin of coveting with great gravity. He says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Then he says this, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Don't let sexual immorality, impurity, or covetousness be named among you as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, think about this. It's, it's easy to spot a habitual sexual sexual sexually immoral person. It's not, like we, it's not like we fornicate and then we return from that saying, oh, I don't know, pretty, pretty debatable. Not sure if that was fornication or not, right? I mean, we know what happened. You know, and so sexual immorality is clearly visible, but coveting is not. It is a different matter altogether. And yet Paul says, don't let that be named amongst you either. And don't let, don't, don't be 
caught off guard, that can send you to hell just as quickly as sexual immorality and the habitual sexually immoral life. We are swimming in an American culture, folks, a culture neck deep in envy and jealousy and covetousness and comparison. And so because we're swimming in that, we can be engulfed in covetousness and never pay any attention to it. Never even have any understanding as to what brought it about. That, that should be sobering to you because Paul says it's just as serious as a sin as the things that we all clearly see. And we clearly see that we are a culture that is hypersexualized. But let me tell you, we are a culture that is absolutely swimming in covetousness. That alone should cause us to cry out and say, search my heart, Lord. But also notice that that's Paul, how seriously Paul takes this sin because saying it is one of the clearest evidences. Or Paul, Paul takes the sin so seriously that he says it is one of the clearest evidences of idolatry. Again, we're in a culture of covetousness. So it's sometimes easy for us to dismiss the severity of it. But Paul puts heavy weight on it. Covet, coveting is ultimately a dissatisfaction with life. Coveting is ultimately a declaration that I want that life. I should have that life. I don't like this life because that life is more precious. But coveting is also a dissatisfaction with God, and that's why Paul applies the weight that he does. It is a declaration that I need these things in order, to, in order to be made whole. I need these things in order to be completed. I need these things in order to be satisfied. I need these things in order to be happy. I need these things more than I need God. God isn't enough is what coveting says. The blessings that God has bestowed on me and on my life isn't enough is what coveting says. The grace that he has given to me and placed and, sh and, sh and showered over my life isn't enough. That's what coveting says. So that's why God, that's why Paul applies the weight of idolatry onto the sin of coveting. So how do we cure it quickly? A couple of things. Number one, sober reflection. Because coveting is a hidden sin, and because we are surrounded by it, we are inundated in it daily, bombarded with thousands of commercials and ads and people constantly telling you that don't, this, will, this will do it for you, this will complete you, this will give you the life that you want, buy, 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 get, get, get. One step in being healed, because that's, our, because that's our life, one step in being healed from this illness is taking a moment to stop and to pause and to determine how we have been actually impacted by this illness. The Bible says that a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. In other words, coveting and envy has a way has a way 
of destroying us from the inside. It has a way of tearing us apart from the inside. A content heart, a quiet heart, a heart that's settled in what it already possesses versus what it does not. That heart has life to give. But, but a discontent heart will rot the whole person, the psalmist says. It will cause you to lose sense of just how ungrateful you have become and just how discontent you have become. One author offers this great indication or indicator of how to determine if we are coveting. And I thought it was helpful. I want to share it with you. He says, one way to know that you're coveting is to see if you are living beyond your means. That's simple. How much money do you have on the credit card? How much do you spend in relation to your income? When you are are living beyond your means, throwing money here and there, money you don't really have, that's a good sign that you may be ensnared by covetousness. End quote. Let me ask you a question. What is your generosity to consumption ratio? What is your generosity to consumption ratio? When I say consumption, I'm talking about consuming needless things, things that you just don't have to have but you get anyway. What is the ratio between those things and generosity? What does your debt profile look like? Do you routinely spend beyond your means? It's not to say debt profiles are always a reflection, but debt profiles could be a possible source for pause. Do you understand? Does it secretly bother you to see others doing well? It's not something you say out loud. But do you look for moments to inject salt when people are commending someone? Do you grumble to yourself when someone else's family is celebrated and not yours? Do you inwardly point out flaws in other people instead of taking part in the celebration? What are you going to do with your COVID aid? A lot of people are going to get checks, right? When receiving COVID aid in the coming weeks, if you've been using that aid solely as an opportunity to grab, 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 and consume, and consume, and consume, rather than seizing it as an opportunity to do more important things with those funds, like making sure that there's generosity involved, making sure that there's debt management involved, making sure that there are things that you have been putting off that you know need to be done, making sure those things get done. If the only thing you do is say, oh, new, more money, so new stuff that I don't need. If that's the only thing, I'm not saying that can't be a thing, but if that's the only thing or if that's the primary thing that we are doing with extra funds, then we might have to pause and ask ourselves, are we succumbing to coveting? That's one step, Right? Sober reflection, asking the Lord to search our hearts in this way. Also, here's another step, remembering that you are not what you possess. The Bible says in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, he said to them, take care. Jesus said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
Jesus is actually, uh, right after he shares that, he tells a story about a man who, a rich man who has, has many crops and many goods stored up in his barns. And he says, um, I, I, got, I got so many goods that I don't even have room for all of this stuff anymore. So what should I do? Should I give some of this stuff away? No, I don't give any of this stuff away. I tear down these barns. I build bigger barns so I can fill them up with more and more and more. And then I'll sit down and I'll say, so you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus says, God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. My identity cannot be wrapped in what I possess because what I possess is fleeting. Instead, I must remember that I am not the accumulation of my things. I am who I worship. The psalmist says in Psalm 73, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We must remember that. That we are not what we possess, we are who we worship. And that if we have who we worship, then we have all that we need. Lastly, remember that you belong to God. Remember that you belong to God. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, it says, Keep your life free from the love of money. Listen, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Did you hear his connection there? Be content with what you have, for God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Why does he say be content with what you have? Because God is there. Be content with what you have, because God is there. Be content with what you have, because he says in verse 6, the Lord is my helper. Be content with what you have. What, what does that mean? It means that typically we are always trying to get something else because we don't think we're okay. We don't think we're okay. And so we keep telling ourselves, well, I'll get that and then I'll be okay. Or I'll get this other thing and then I'll be okay. Or I'll get this, this, this wife or I'll get this relationship and then, and then I will be okay. And we're, and we're constantly just reaching and reaching and reaching, telling ourselves when we get these things, then we will be okay. The author of Hebrews says, no, you are okay. You're already okay because you have God. And so you can be content where you are with what you have because you have God. You can be content where you are with what you have because the Lord is my helper. And I will not fear. You can be content because Jesus Christ came to this world. Jesus Christ paid the price for your sin. Jesus Christ paid the price by dying on a cross for your sin. And Jesus Christ demonstrated that we will be okay when on the third day he rose from the grave with all power in his hands, showing us that not only was he willing to sacrifice himself, 
but that he had the power to make sure that we would all be okay. You can be content because you know that heaven is your home. You can be content because you know that eternal life awaits you. And that nothing can strip you of that. That no absence of possession will take that away from you. That no, that no absence of status will take that away from you. No absence of relationship will take that away from you. God has given you that. And if you have not received that, then I invite you to trust him by faith. To turn from your life, doing things your way. And to turn to Christ and embrace his way. Turn to Christ in obedience and to follow him. And you too, like all those before you, will be okay. Let's pray.